0: Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the December 17, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. Syrian neuropharmacologist Amal Alashkar, currently doing research at UCI, will talk about how Syrian scientific assets are at risk. That is to say, the whole the whole educational infrastructure. She'll speak from the perspective of a professional as well as a current family breadwinner here in Irvine. In the second half, UCI hydrology engineer James Famiglietti will bring with him to studio as well his students, Sasha Ritchie and Jamiat Nantesa to rattle our cages about how much is at stake with groundwater worldwide. It's not just the Pentagon who's interested. You should be too. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. The first time that we broached the debacle that is Syria was in February 2012. That was almost two years ago. That, at that point was a year after what started as a peaceful uprising It is no more a stable situation now than it was then. It is less so. A country with the general literacy of 85%, that's 94% uh, literacy rate with the students, 110,000 casualties, and 30% of the Syrians have fled. And so much of its infrastructure eroded or collapsed completely here to talk today about the collapse of the scientific infrastructure and the educational infrastructure generally is my first guest Amal Alashkar a Syrian national and a neuropharmacologist with a temporary appointment here at UCI she graduated from the pharmacy school at Aleppo University, Syria, in 1996, and worked as a community pharmacist until 2000, when she completed her PhD in the UK, the neuroscience in the University of Manchester. In 2004, she returned to Syria to join the School of Pharmacy Aleppo University faculty, where she established a neuroscience lab and was also an administrator for students in 2011 she came and she'll talk about that we'll open that all the way up came at a timely moment to the usa on a hubert humphrey program in penn state and in june 2012 she was granted a scholar rescue fund scholarship more about which she'll also tell us today with matching funds from uci she began her position as a visiting associate professor in the department of pharmacology her work was interrupted for two months when her work authorization expired. She resumed the work three weeks ago and all of this going on. She set aside valuable time to join me here in Studio A, where we shall focus on her personal situation to illustrate the perils of the Syrian civil war. Welcome to the show, Dr. Amal Ashgar. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you for giving me this chance to speak about the tragedy in Syria.
0: It's really critical that we get to hear uh, from you today. And let's begin the academic life, the culture of university research, it's entirely different between what you experienced in your training and your professional life in Syria and your professional life in the UK and now the US. Let, I'd like for you to focus um, at the beginning here on what that scientific infrastructure has been like over your training and your professional lifetime.
1: In general, good education and quality education will prepare uh, students and build their capacity to participate in their uh, society and uh, to be competent in economy and in the labor market. Uh, that means uh, that the education should foster creativity, should foster uh, analytical thinking. However, in uh, authoritarian uh, ruling systems, so that's a threat for dictators. Yes, In Syria and for 40 years of course dictator uh, 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 Hafez al-Assad and then his son Bashar al-Assad were afraid mostly from uh, educated people so this is why there was that the system in Syria education system was fostering encouraging pliable uh, generation of students who show uh, uh, loyalty and that's the uh, Citizenship, that's the false meaning of citizenship in uh, Syria. So this is why like, it, it was very hard to really build a culture for research because to do research you, you have to build in the minds of students who will do the research in the future to build that, this analytical thinking. Yes. Uh, Of course, like that's completely different uh, from where I've been trained in the UK. So where like you can express your uh, ideas, if you have novel idea, that the the education system will welcome these uh, ideas. So this is why when I went back to uh, Syria after uh, completing my PhD, so I had to focus on this point. I thought there won't be, there is no hope to have any change at economical uh, or social levels in Syria except if we really foster the uh, move, moving students from knowing and comprehensive of knowledge to building, to analyzing, and then to judging. Of course, like there was a res- resistance in the beginning, but I, I, I was really, I, I feel, I'm proud that I was successful in changing that the framework of the minds. Like the the the, the idea was uh, the concept of uh, uh, teaching in Syria was teachers delivered knowledge, students absorb, and then. Re- they reproduce in the exams. So there was no space for novel ideas by students. And of course, that means uh, they won't be able to uh, approach uh, any uh, new research. And of course, the, the uh, system, the Ministry of Higher Education, won't uh, encourage such uh, uh, movement to, to like to, to freely express because once you have this space, that means you will start to debate the authorities. You will start to question the legitimacy of the uh, dictators
0: on so many different levels. Of course. Okay. Oh. well, we we went we skip right through a bio, which uh, itself each of those steps you took since you were in the UK in Manchester to study your neuroscience uh, advanced degrees that you every step of the way after that was you were just ahead of the next kind of repercussion of your actively decided that you you would step uh, aside from what the, um, the most of the academicians who were a bit concerned about dissenting along with the students. The students were already descending in the, in the uprising in, in 2011. And so very few academics were following them because they remember in the 1980s what happened with Assad's fathers um, uh, bringing them down. And so uh, you, you had made some decisions. And so why don't you lead us through what you decided to do and why you had to keep moving because of the way Uh, you were being treated as a result of your putting yourself out there, Mm -hmm. Amal.
1: So the decision was for me very simple because like for me, even before the uh, March 2011, before the uprising, I was looking at what's happening in Egypt, Tunisia, and Libya. And I I thought, this is our moment. It's either now or never. So we have to take this chance. But to be honest, I have to... uh, say that I wasn't brave enough to start. Like we, we started some discussions like with my close friends because we know that informers among students and among faculty are sometimes like, especially in the university, we have large number of those informers who report any movement, any any speech you, you are uh, talking. So this is why like we start just like discussing with, with some um Uh, intellectuals and then when the student actually the uprising started with students. Students in the university, students in the schools uh, uh, started this uprising and the demand in the beginning was just like to have some more reforms more democracy but then the brutal response of the Regime actually uh, ignited the the revolution, and the, the daily demonstrations uh, turned into uh, like expanded all over the country. So, of course, like for me, it it wasn't like a moment decision that I, I was waiting this moment long time oh, ago yes. before the even the uprising. I was waiting for a moment that I see my people having uh, more freedom, more democracy. I I see the corruption. I see that the oppression by the regime, the injustice, the lack of dignity. And I feel it. I I was feeling this as a faculty in the university. I felt the interference by Al Ba'ath party, by the the intelligence, uh, all kinds of, of course, like security intelligence in Syria with the daily work in our university. So I feel a lack of dignity. uh, so and I, I felt the humiliation like that. It's humiliating my mind, yes. basically, like right. uh, humiliating the, our uh, intellectuals. <laughs> so this is why it wasn't like uh, that. I had to decide. No, it's 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 my decision long time ago, and that's that was the moment. So of course, like I was among the minority, and that's uh, of course um for some reason because uh faculty know uh the the brutal the brutality, the brutality of, of the regime yeah and they experienced this brutality in the uh, 80s so where uh, actually hundreds of uh, uh, medical doctors, engineers and faculty and the universities were arrested and actually disappeared sometimes for an, or, or they were killed so and they were thinking well this time it won't be better than the 80s so we know we experienced this regime the, the The son Bashar is his father's son. So, and his father killed about thirty to forty thousand people (sighs) in the eighties. So, and we are sure that this guy is ready to kill even millions.
0: And you knew it it. threefold from beyond what his father. Yeah, of course.
1: so this is why, like, uh, not all faculty were encouraged to speak out and uh, yeah, stand uh, beside the that, that, um, students. And
0: maybe Bashar Assad was also uh, motivated by, with the, uh, with the Arab Spring surrounding Syria, that he had to make an example of. How firmly he wanted his regime to come down on any kind of a dissension, yeah, so sure. that perhaps is what motivated you more, uh, focused you r- laser-like sharply on the need to to pick every moment for a, an opportunity exactly. for dissent. So you're speaking out, you're noticed. You are not being handled like uh, somebody who's just called into the principal's office. You were actually I, – I don't – we're not going to be uh, graphic or anything like that. That's not the point of uh, this program. But I'd like for you to give us at least an idea of uh, – it wasn't very pleasant how you were dealt with while you were still there yeah. before the Hubert Humphrey Grant Fellowship.
1: Well <laughs> – because I was speaking uh, out, I was interrogated by the uh, security. Uh, the air force. The air force, which, which is was the most brutal one in the uh, in in Syria, because like the the, the not about these uh, security agencies. Like no one gets there, get out alive. <laughs>
0: And you knew that going. You knew Yet. who had change you. Knew but at least that I wasn't, you.
1: I, yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, I was terrified, actually. I, I was scared, yeah. Uh, but the, the message was, uh, okay, so this time we will let it go. And... It, So this is why, like, my coming to the USA was timely through Humphrey program. Because, for example, I can give example for another colleague. So he was, like, in the beginning, spoke out like me. He was interrogated, but he wasn't arrested. So the second time, so he was arrested for maybe one week. And then he was released. The third time, he was arrested for six weeks. And he was tortured. And uh, he was... Only released after like the international calls, yeah, for for his release. And now he's here. He's oh, he's in, here in New York. Yeah, some on of them Scholar rescue fund. Yeah, some
0: uh, of them when they were released, they were dealt with. You're, you're all of you were talking about how all the checkpoints within Syria yeah. is a, a place to uh, for more oppression to be carried out. But yeah, sure. some of th- some of your other colleagues, after they're being tortured and released, were uh, were shot shot at other locations or they were k- killed in their um, in yeah. during their detention so this there was you were just steps ahead of that kind of uh, re- being exactly, reincarcerated, exactly. reinterrogated. I was
1: really lucky, just like I skipped on time, <laughs> because I knew after I came here, uh, the security uh, intelligence were keeping questioning me everywhere. Not only me, my husband as well, because my husband also like participated in, in many demonstrations, and he, he was did. speaking out yeah. as a dentist. He's, as a dentist, like in his clinic, he was trying to enhance the awareness of people. Of what's happening in other cities sure because he's got in them in Apo- the
0: chair he can tell them yeah, everything exactly
1: <laughs> that was like good chance for him like of course <laughs> yeah even in the university he, he uh, is lecturer in the uh, university in dental school so he was trying to uh just like uh, enhance the awareness among students uh, among even faculty that we can do something if we come all together but like one of us if anyone speaks out by him or herself he might be arrested but what if we all come together so they won't arrest like thousands of faculty but unfortunately the, the fear uh in in like in the hearts of of all faculty uh was more than like being able to
0: just move Understandably. For those of you who've just joined us on Ask a Leader here on Radio KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming live all over the world on KUCI.org. My guest is Amal Alashkar. She's a neuro- neuropharmacologist here on a temporary appointment at UCI and talking about the many ways in which Syrians are being displaced. We're actually making her uh, the example of what is how people are being dealt with by the Bashar Assad regime currently. Well, uh, let's uh, take up the time when you came to work at Penn State. You've, you've told us about what's been going on in Syria. So, um, your situation, you're, we're talking about your displacement, and this displacement is a reflection of the broad displacement. Uh, you're finding you're from a distant location, you're trying to keep students engaged intellectually trying to maintain critical thinking that could be only fostered in a free setting. But that is getting very problematic because of the refugees are starting to max out the capacity of the nearby Jordan, nearby Turkey, nearby Lebanon. And so you are here. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about what you're trying to do institutionally to get any university around the world to do some kind of sponsorship so that the Amal's out there who are pre-doctoral that are maybe in uh, just entering into a and just starting their their collegiate career maybe you're even concerned about the 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 primary secondary in educational infrastructure because this this becomes a lost generation when this engagements intellectual mm-hmm. engagement is happening so I want to give you a chance uh, to talk about uh, what you would like to see us do uh, in terms of a- availing Uh, our resources personally institutionally to address this displacement that you've Mm -hmm. already experienced and you witnessed uh, of people that are behind you in their academic careers Mm -hmm. that's a big mouthful but I I, this is our moment Amal
1: okay thank you Uh, as you introduced me I'm currently Scholar Rescue Fund fellow Uh, I was lucky to uh, uh, be granted this fellowship by the Institute of International Education. Uh, what happened actually after the end of my program, the Humphrey program in Penn State, I was supposed to go back to my country. It was in June 2012. And so far I, I, I thought well the situation in Syria will be getting better. Uh, we, I uh, will go back to my country. I won't see this dictators, and it's like what happens in Libya in, in Egypt it took some time but at the end we get rid of those dictators but that didn't happen in Syria and going back to Syria at that time means like being captured from the airport and maybe killed or, or tortured or whatever. So this is why I applied for the Scholar Rescue Fund uh, by the IIE, Institute of International Education. Uh, and this actually um, is, is a, a fellowship which requires a matching fund from institute or university in USA or in any other country.
0: So institute, that could be a think tank, it could be a foundation, it could yes. be any university. So yes. this is such a broad, be, uh, applicable exactly. pool of, of, yes. of groups. Okay. It's
1: really great because like now many Syrian faculty actually benefit from this Scholar Rescue Fund. Yeah. and the Wherever they are. Yes. And, and this and could be in
0: Turkey, this could be exactly. in Jordan. Yeah,
1: there are some in Jordan, there are some in Turkey, there are some in Europe, in Malaysia, and of course, like in and the you. USA. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And uh <clears throat> And that actually, in the Institute of International Education uh, has started initiative to increase the, the support, not only for uh, to, uh, Syrian scholars, the, the faculty, but also to students. And now with um, uh, partnering with, uh, uh, for example, IIT Illinois Institute of Technology, actually they could support at more than 30 students wow. in IIT last year. That's really amazing number. Yeah. So the idea that any university can do something. So, of course, like one university, single university, uh, maybe can provide for one scholarship. But if you just like get like, how many universities in the world and that means like how many students how many faculty uh, we can support so actually that's uh, the international academic uh, society should take the responsibility to support Syrian uh, scholars and Syrian students because uh, though the students especially the students are the future of Syria so we know that the war will will stop one day we will get rid of the regime one day but we need to rebuild the society we really need, need to rebuild the state and without education without educated people we ha- we have no hope for any Uh, Civilized society. Exactly. It's lost society. Yeah, It's like the reconciliation, the tolerance, the the, the diversity, all these values. So they only are appreciated with education. Yeah, You only can spread those values by educated people. So this is why it's really uh, a responsibility that all the uh, international uh, academic communities have to take. Yeah. And I believe like, for example, UCI, uh, I really appreciate uh, like matching the fund with the the IIE, the uh, Scholar Rescue Fund. And they can do even more. They can take uh, Syrian students while like just provide one scholarship to Syrian students and have more faculty. Yeah, so train them uh, for for a number of years, and uh, yeah, I think th- there's something that the UCI or or any university in USA can do to support Syrian students. And
0: your stars. situation, though, is really precarious at this point. I would like for you to tell listeners uh, what your status is. That money is is uh, limited. I don't know how long do you envision that you'll be able to re- m- retain that appointment. And uh, what are your options mm-hmm. w- at the p- point where those resources are drained?
1: Actually, now I'm uh, now, um, in the second year of uh, Scholar Rescue Fund Fellowship. Uh, basically, the SRF, Scholar Rescue Fund, is for one year fellowship uh, could be renewed for another year, but after that uh um fellows have to uh rely on themselves to find uh positions. And now I still have this year, the two thousand thirteen, two thousand fourteen academic year in okay. UCI. That's but year one. Yeah. No, to that's year two. This is that's already year, year two you're in. Yes, yes. Uh so I started um Hunting for jobs everywhere in USA, yeah and maybe outside the country yeah
0: And so and your, your husband's dental practice is put on side he is you are the breadwinner right now so people yes. can realize that the, the stakes are really high for what you're able to to land in, t- in terms of support. And your family members now since we know that in repressive regimes that family members are dealt with as a way of trying to uh, inhibit your dissent. Uh, wherever you are, but where are all your family members in this day?
1: Uh, The core family, actually, my siblings and my father are out of Syria. Uh, uh, My father is in France with my sister. Uh, He left the country last year, and that actually caused a relief for me because like, uh, before that I was really hesitant even to speak here uh, because they might arrest him being involved here in right. activities. So he went to uh, Egypt and now he is currently in France. Uh, other siblings are already like long time ago. They are either in in the UK or France or uh,
0: USA. It's something you must have had to think about when, when you began uh, putting yourself out there, that family members were at risk of being dealt with. And so that that they Definitely. are unscathed relatively. Now, it's just not to say that there hasn't been a lot that you've had all of you hold together, but uh, amazingly, everybody is safe now. And so... Yeah. Let's um, now, as we wind down the interview, um, you're very involved with making these appeals. You're appearing all over the country with appealing for support for academics, Syrian academics, Uh, you're putting emphasis on uh, a couple we can talk about. The um, Soria, that's the Syrian Organization for Relief and International Awareness Incorporated. That's a Facebook page that people can follow. S-O-R-I-A would be the acronym to look up on the Facebook, as well as the Syrian American Medical Society. Perhaps the Medical Society is another foundation that has matching funds for the, the rescue fund.
1: Uh, these are actually uh, those two um, societies actually providing mainly medical and humanita- humanitarian aid. Okay. Humanitarian okay. aid. Yeah. Yeah. To Syrians, either in the refugee camps or inside Syria, uh, they uh, arrange even uh, uh, trips. To uh, Turkey, to Jordan, for uh, medical doctors, either Syrians or American
0: doctors, which is essential. Where I'm going to side up exactly. the our immediate displacement topic, but that, but the, with the horrific kinds of of, of casualties, the uh, people, the wounds that people have sustained, those that are still living, exactly. and they they've got to get that kind of help because there are so many now. Uh, yeah communities where there's no electricity, there's no anesthesia, and people are being uh, amputated with with the crudest of kinds of, of conditions, and so uh, that those kind of humanitarian aids with uh, yeah. the Syrian Organization but for really But with Relief.
1: regard to the education, actually, uh, I think that the IIE uh, is the, the best uh, organization, the best institute uh, to the international that, educate the Institute of the Institute. International
0: Education um, Scholar fun, yes. Refund yep. uh, Rescue Fund. Okay, well that's huh, a mouthful. And uh, as I learned and uh, looking up various uh, sources, Amal is the Arabic word for hope, and it's uncanny how Amal al Ashkar has looked for every opportunity to be hopeful amidst such misery, such. Um, such massive kind of a repression that it isn't letting up. And we've seen how the momentum that the regime has maintained and gained now in the very complicated sort of opposition uprising uh, in Syria. So um, I want everybody to take a look at the podcast summary. I'm going to repeat all of these organizations so you know where you can go. I'm thinking with our important resources that we have uh, individually, I think they go a long way to, to make a statement against repression, that you can contribute in a holiday situation and beyond holiday to match your funds with lots of other institutional funding so that Amal's, uh, her, her goal, her mission here to, to bring intellectual engagement educational security to an entire society. So, Amal Alashkar, I want to thank you so much uh, for being here today on our Ask a Leader. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today here. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. UCI hydrology engineer extraordinaire, Jay familiari is back with us after his recent meetings at the Pentagon and an appearance on Al Jazeera, to name just a few dicey locations. The upper echelons are paying attention to global climate change and resource depletion, a we who, uh, so the rest of us might join them. Accompanying Jay here in Studio A are two students who are also attending these international meetings with him at various places. One is Jamiat Nanteza, a Ugandan native and a PhD candidate in the Department of Earth System Science at UC Irvine, where she is a graduate fellow at the UC Center for Hydrologic Modeling. She is also an assistant lecturer in the Department of Geography, Geoinformatics, and Climatic Sciences at Makerere uh, University in Uganda. Her research focuses on changes in East African water resources using computer models and satellites. Boy, would I love to look over the shoulder of all that that she's pulling off there. Nanteza earned in her uh, earned her B.S. in mathematics from Makerere. In her uh, and her M.S. in applied meteorology from the University of Reading. That's in the that's in the 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 or the the, um, the the the, the ma- Berkshires uh, in UK. She holds both a Fulbright and NASA fellowship. The other student with us is Sasha Ritchie, a PhD candidate in the hydrology and water resource program within civil and environmental engineering at UCI. Her dissertation research utilizes satellite observations of changes in terrestrial water storage to quantify global water stress with a focus on groundwater Sasha holds a NASA Earth and Space Science Fellowship and she is a graduate fellow of the UC Center for Hydrologic Modeling. She's accompanied Jay's team in the Middle East, that's Israel, Jordan, and Palestine, last February, that is. She is from Seattle and received her Bachelor's of Science in Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford University. With all that capacity, all that brain power here, there's not enough room in Studio A. We shall hear from each one of them about water security issues that persist as they deepen around the world. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jay, Sasha Namiat. Thanks so much for having us back.
2: Thank you for having us here. Thank you, glad to be here.
0: Well, it's I, in a way I just don't know how all of you um high-powered engineers can just keep your cool with the groundwater depletion only uh, uh, deepening and I, I know that um that Sasha had set up an uh, A a head-to-head with uh, lots of uh, farm workers, farm managers in the Fresno area, where Jay was uh, captured on film in the last Cal Oasis about we're screwed. But it's that echoing we're screwed doesn't. It's just not. It's not letting up, folks. That observation. So we're going to now, we're going to transition from my. uh, my Syrian guest, Jamal Ashkar, Alashkar, um, we're going to transition and talk first about the water security issue as it's playing out between Syria and Turkey. Jay familiari Well, um,
3: that's a, a region that has traditionally um, uh, gone head-to-head over over water issues. One of the bigger issues that's playing out there now in that region uh, is that is that uh, the control of the river water in the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, really it's sort of up to interpretation of the various uh, riparian or river riverside uh, countries. And so what we're seeing happening in, in, in that region is that Turkey has built uh, a massive dam and reservoir uh, system called the Greater Anatolia Project, and that's certainly uh, decreased the flows uh, of water into uh, the downstream region, in particular, Syria, and so they're they're left uh, struggling a bit, and and very naturally have to tap uh, into groundwater uh, much deeper uh, than they've had to in the past.
0: And we can um, we can go well, we're in the, generally in the Middle East. Uh, we can take up with Sasha. Um, who has been working with the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment satellites um, in the, the Middle Eastern projects? So, um, Grace is the acronym for the Gravity Recovery and Climate Exper- Experiment satellite. So, um, you can look that up, folks. It's a, it's an amazing sort of methodology for tap literally tapping into how those magnetic fields that they're using uh locate where the hottest spots are of groundwater depletion but let's talk about what your recent travel in the, in the middle east with that is in palestine jordan and israel what you have, want to bring as the dire message from there
4: Well, I think I'd rather focus a little less on the dire message and more on the opportunity that we had. Good of you. (laughs) The opportunity that we have as hydrologists and scientists. When we were there, we met with our peers, fellow engineers, fellow scientists, And we all speak the same language. So instead of focusing on the politics, we can focus on the data and observations that we get from the GRACE satellite and really figure out how to use that science to improve peace building and collaboration to have sustainable water management that can hopefully hopefully lead to more collaboration across political boundaries as well. So
0: you've got the attention of the the institutional and the academic um, members contributing. And so there's there's no. They're not dealing with the same kind of naysaying about the uh, in, in the general uh, academic culture and and political culture. There, they're understanding what's at stake.
4: Yes, I think everybody's highly aware of the situation. Everybody, but everybody is well. But that can't be a limiting factor in moving forward from a scientific perspective. So we really tried to focus on data sharing and sharing of knowledge and capacity building. And that's really the role that we can play as scientists. It's overstepping our bounds to really go beyond the science and try to fit that too far into the political arena. So we just really try to focus on our data and share the information that we have just to see how we can help in any way possible.
0: Oh, Okay. And we also have, Jamiat, you recently returned from Eastern Africa, your native Uganda. So you have a great deal of, um, you can get a lot of attention uh, from from Uganda and with all your credentials you bring back um, there and also meeting in Kenya and Tanzania where you visited universities, water managers, and water ministries and you've attended a, a, clim- a climate conference where they shared the work on using satellites and applying computer models to study water availability re- uh, region. What can you tell us about your work there in that group?
2: Well, basically, the the whole trip was about sharing the work we do here at the UC Center for Hydrologic Modeling. And being a person from this region, Yes, I know we have issues to do with water. So we went back to share what we are doing and let these people know of the potential applications of the work we are doing in future. So we are trying to design a model that we can use to study the water resources of the region so getting back to the stakeholders who really apply these results in management of water resources was the big issue of this trip and yes we talked to water ministers we talked to the researchers we also gained more information about what's going on and the way of getting data to really try and improve our models was one of the issues
0: so what is your impression, Jamiat, with the, all the way from the top down compared to what, like what Sasha learned from the the Fresno case study, uh, the, the meeting, the, the forums, was in in Tanzania, Uganda, and um, and Kenya, from from the very top echelons, and how far down is this message getting translated and sent down and incorporated into practices? I'll I'll speak from
2: experience. Please, I think there is. There's a gap between the top and the people who use the water. I've used this water since I was young. And I know I didn't have any knowledge about even whether groundwater can be depleted or whether even that resource can run out. So I knew we pump water from the ground but it's that resource that is never ending. So I think there's a gap between the users of the water and the people who manage. So there's need
0: to really try to... A universal kind of a gap then. Yeah. It's everybody's discovering that, and that's the key thing. Um, I, did you want to speak to that directly it, while we're there? I, did. I, I definitely wanted to speak
3: to that. So one of the things that we've okay. learned through going through this process of, of visiting the most water-stressed regions in the world um, is that we really have to try to convey this message at a, at a higher level and, and speaking about a higher level politically when we when we uh, visit our academic friends um, they're already on the same page right we don't have to convince them that there's an issue um, and many of them are not really empowered to take the message especially in the developing world or you know other countries around the world are not necessarily like the United States. So we've learned along the way that we do need help from the U.S. government to penetrate to higher levels in governments uh, around the world. So that's why we've worked with the State Department, for example. They helped out quite a bit with our trip in the Middle East, got us into embassies, got us into water ministries, where we can now take that message to to a much higher level.
0: Well, you worked with the State Department to get to work the, the international connection. So um, recently, you were a guest. They had the audience um, at the the Pentagon, Jay, and that was the Office of Net Assessment. I think was every uh, was anybody in this room besides Jay at that meeting? I guess you ha- you brought other students with you, and so um, that uh, was certainly an important entity within the Pentagon to go to, since they pl- do, they plan out at least twenty years. Mm-hmm strategically uh, how to maintain security. And groundwater depletion is the mother of all security issues, even though none of us think of it that. So perhaps you could talk to us. You didn't get to talk to the the Yoda of the uh, Office of, of Net Assessment, but you talked to his assistant. So I'd like to have you give us an idea of where that meeting is going to take us in terms of groundwater depletion management, what uh, what their sites are, since uh, nobody knows what the Office of Net Assessment is actually working on. It's super secret, but your general sort of public uh, dissemination of what we can rely on, they're doing dil- due diligence for all. Of course, if we tell you, then we'll, we'll have to kill you. <laughs> so. And all the <laughs> listeners.
3: Uh, uh, the Office of Net Assessment is uh, its its goal is to understand in a in a holistic sense the threat or the relative strength of other countries compared to the United States, so they take this holistic view. they are in the office of the Secretary of defense, mm-hmm. um, and the director of the Office of Net Assessment has advised. Secretaries of Defense going back to the Nixon era, so he's quite quite a powerful, uh, quite a powerful guy. This is the the, the man they the call you. N-
0: the sharpest ninety two year old around.
3: That's what that's what they say. Now we didn't get it, it, uh, our trip was sort of like going to visit Oz. We didn't really get to see Oz. He was behind the curtain, and so we got to speak with his uh, assistant. But w- one of the things that we took out of that meeting is that there is uh, a grave concern about the water situation globally and a grave concern about the water situation within particular countries and in in particular within within china so one of the things that we were asked to do was prepare a couple of short white papers on global water issues as you mentioned looking out two or three decades looking at how these groundwater depletion trends might continue and also to do an assessment of the water situation uh... within china and to bring and to bring those back and uh... Um, uh, possibly do a longer-term study with the with the Office of Net Assessment.
0: And with your work that the the Grace modeling has uh, done, the hotspot that you located, you you were totally taken by surprise with the India hotspot. Sure, the India hotspot, which uh, is re- and how that relates to the China uh, sure, white paper,
3: right? Well, so uh, when we use this gray data and we look around the world, we do see a number of hotspots where groundwater depletion shows up quite quite strongly, and the and the human fingerprint of water management is quite apparent. and And some of the biggest ones are India, northwestern India, uh, actually all across northern India, India, Bangladesh, the Middle East really all over the Middle East, but in particular, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and really all around China. So the North China Plains, there are several spots in in China. So it's uh, the whole greater Asian region is one where we have a huge population that is, of course, using a lot of water.
0: Well, let's uh, let all three of your minds go to what kind of an assessment you've given the Pentagon in terms of long-term planning and then the reach of actual water managers in China where how is that leap going to look let's say think in your in the best possible scenario and perhaps to what degree that can be carried out, and while l- I'll let you compose that answer, while I'm reminding for those of you who've just joined us, you're uh, listening to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming around the water coolers around the world on the web kuci.org. My guests are hydrological engineer UCI Jay Famiglieri, with his high deg- super degreed applied uh, students Jamiat Nanteza and. Sasha Ritchie here, and so we're going to take up the issue of how we translate an assessment of the dire straits of the groundwater depletion trends like in China and how the Chinese Groundwater managers with, that are playing, they're playing the long game here with all resources that they're taking ownership of and exploiting and that and it leads uh, to those uh, other hot spots beyond their borders. So when you've talked to me, Jay, about the importance of governance in uh, overseeing water groundwater management, what do you envision is going to be? the step to take to engage Chinese managers administrators Th- so
3: that's really a, a million dollar question and China in particular is one you know, we found in our visit we visited there in 2011 and we did find honestly a high level of denial of the of the situation in China with respect to both the declining water quantity and the water quality and so that is a frame of mind that will have to be overcome. And so the challenge for us is to really communicate those findings in ways. I mean, it's in part a social and political science problem. How do you get those leaders to engage and to bite down on the, the very harsh reality that, uh, that, that we're facing?
4: Sasha Ritchie, you want to say? Yeah, I think that Jamiat touched on something that was really important, and we've experienced this in our work in the Central Valley, is that it's really about connecting both the highest level and the lowest level with the individual stakeholder. And I think in these trips and in trying to connect our work to sustainable management in the future with groundwater depletion, we really have to be focusing on interacting with farmers and really understanding what their needs are and how our science can fit into that. And then once we have that backing, it gives us even more weight and power when we go to meet with the water ministers and regions. It's not just us coming in from the outside, but we've shown that we've engaged with the stakeholders, the users of the water, and we understand the picture on the ground that much better.
0: Well, while we're talking about that, you know, we've, we, there's a, a quite uh, a large and expanding Chinese demographic in the UC system, are is that translating into hydrologic engineering that can take, I mean, gospel in the generic sense, the, the news, the good news that they can carry in, in implementation? Is there a connect going on with that enrollment in the advanced degrees in engineering and a possibility of planting that seat in assessment and eventual implementation in China? Jay, first?
3: I certainly hope so. Um, we are training a larger and larger fraction of, of international students from that from that region and our hope and and on a graduate level we we have students from all over the world and so Jamiat's an example and we tried to recruit a Middle Eastern student uh, uh, last year unfortunately didn't didn't work out um, but that's I mean that's a big part of what we do is to train uh, these Right, young uh, people like Jamiat and Sasha, and in Jamiat's case, not that we want to see her leave the country, the United States, but um, you know, hopefully, she can bring this information and these skills back to her region, and and no pressure, but hopefully, make a big difference.
0: Well, Jamiat, what are your plans professionally as you continue? I mean, you're you're really situated very well right here. What are your plans uh, as a professional, uh, a professional academic, a professional engineer?
2: Well, the plan is to continue with research. I plan to go back home and You do? Take home a whole bunch of knowledge that I've acquired here. So the plan is to continue working with research, working with the stakeholders in the water resources and really making sure we apply the results of our research. So we plan actually to our long-term goal is to get a tool that can be used by our region, East Africa, in the monitoring of water resources in the region. So, yeah, I'm going home.
0: You I are think. going home. And in, uh, in the uh, the capital or just uh, where you're closer, more closely affiliated with then the so administrators? So I work at the university.
2: And and, um, the is not there, field, though, yeah. is it?
0: It is in the capital? It is in the capital. Okay. So that's right. Okay. The university. Okay, well, and so so you've been very strategic then, Jay, about recruiting uh, academicians, recruiting proto-academicians to to lead the way with expanding that um, professional infrastructure to um, manage those resources. That's right. Uh, that's right. I, I, I think
3: it's a very uh, important part of the of the work that we do in our research group and, and at our center. There's, there's too much at stake
0: we've got then the uh, International Geophysical Union recently uh, met and so what kinds of uh, I don't know if any did you Sasha were you also there so why don't you Sasha take up uh, that meets I don't know every so many years it's not uh, not quite annual but what what is your takeaway from the that group
4: so I believe you're referring to the American Geophysical Union Conference it's held in San Francisco every year just before before Christmas and I just think that it's one of the best weeks of the year every year. And all of our colleagues and fellow grad students feel the same because we talk a lot about how scary climate change is or groundwater depletion, and a lot of that fear comes from not really knowing how it's all going to play out. And when we go to AGU, we're around all of our peers and fellow scientists and people we've been reading about for years, and we see all of the great work that's really being done to address these unknowns. So really, it's an exhausting week, uh, but I think every week we come away just feeling a little bit more inspired, knowing a little bit more about how all of these uncertainties might play out.
0: And that that becomes a contributor to the eventual more less frequent international geophysical union meetings. Then, Is that how that works?
3: So yeah, so there is uh, maybe you're talking about the uh, the IUGG meeting, which happens every every four years. That's- And so this meeting does feed into that one. You know, since we're on the topic, I wanted to point out that 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 these two were like rock stars at that at that meeting. They gave excellent presentations. I it's all sort of a blur now, but I think that they were back to back presentations and uh they just did a wonderful job. I mean, going from the regional scales of East Africa that Jamiat was looking at to the global scales of groundwater depletion and water stress that that Sasha was. Uh, was looking at uh, just um, an amazing uh, display. I'm very proud of of both of them and all of my students.
0: Well, I'm I, I'm reassured that they're they're in there doing that and um, that the, the forums are they heard they were heard and they're they're taking away from there. And so I, while we're talking then about let's say the American level, I can't leave the interview without uh, let's give some lip service to what effect our own. National or federal funding? How the sequestration is affecting the work that is going on? Because if if we're the training professionals, uh, probably in the largest way, but we're dealing with our own political undermining of what these profe- these trained professionals are addressing. So, tell us, Jay Familiari, what is happening with the sequestration? Which has it's, there's been a, a reversal of some of the spending, but for. The, for the purposes of what you're involved, I don't think we're seeing any uh, funding cuts reversing yet.
3: No, no reversals. But you know, some of the things that really affected us, for example, the shutdown was a, was a big deal. There were a number of meetings that were that were canceled. Um, sequestration. So that that was a that was a major problem. Uh, that meant that the distribution of our funds, which are you know largely federal, uh, was was slowed down proposal reviews which affect the future uh, funding down the road were slowed down so it's uh, it's been a huge obstacle
0: well on that note folks remember those kinds of uh, aspects that the huge impacts of, of these kinds of policy uh, decisions when you go to the voting booth because that's that's where it translates is where the funding uh, projects our priorities as a as an International player in all kinds of resources. Well, we have Jay Famiglietti, Namiat Nanteza, and Sasha Ritchie, who've as we I've got rock stars uh, galore in this studio A with me today, talking about the water security issues internationally with groundwater depletion. Thank you so much for listening.
3: Hi, this is Jay Familietti, Earth System Science Professor at UC Irvine. Well, I am not busy trying to save the planet. I listen to KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine. Can somebody get me a bottle of water, please? (laughs) What are you doing drinking bottled water? (laughs) Get that bottle of water off the table.